Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. Hello and welcome to Palace Confidential, your weekly update on royal news and views brought to you from the Mail Plus headquarters right here in Kensington. I'm Jess King, standing in for Joe Elvin. Well, this week, transatlantic tensions have once again been dominating royal headlines. Prince Harry appeared to criticise his father over his connections to a Saudi businessman who was later given an honour by referring to the affair as the CBE scandal. Well, the Daily Mail's editor-at-large, Richard Kay, has his analysis. We seem to have reached another dip in their relationship, this time, of course, with Harry's decision to uh, explain what he had done when a man came to him bearing huge sums of money for his charitable interests a few years ago and how he claimed he flagged up this warning signs about this guy um, to his father, or at least to his father's employees. Um, the difficulty is that nobody recalls any of these conversations or and our, people are wondering who exactly he warned about the Saudi businessman concerned. I think the difficulty for, for Prince Charles is that every time now Harry opens his mouth, he seems to chip away at his father's credibility, if you like, um, and this must be undermining their relationship. I mean, they have on the horizon the prospect of Harry's autobiography or memoir. We, we don't know what's gonna be in it, but we do know he has spent some time digging into his mother's relationship with his father. I mean, they must be dreading the publication of that book and what it will mean. We're edging closer to the Prince of Wales becoming monarch. And every time uh, these embarrassing situations uh, erupt with his son, um, it reminds people about why people have problems with, with, with the prospect of, of Charles as king. Um, he's done his level best over the last 15, 20 years, I would say, to try and sort of rededicate himself to, to his future subjects. Um, but there, there are obviously difficulties. People still haven't forgiven or forgotten the Diana years. And Harry, constant reminder about the past makes this a really tricky transition period for Charles. The interesting thing, I think, is that very much like Harry is doing now, Diana sort of targeted not the prince himself, but those people around him. And again, we have a repetition of that with Harry. He's suggesting it's the people around his father who have um, let him down. I think, by and large, there isn't a great deal of communication going on. Um, and we know that they haven't seen one another since the funeral of Prince Philip back in April. Prince Harry's not coming over to spend Christmas with the royal family at Sandrium. Prince Charles has still not met his newest granddaughter, Lilibet. I mean, there, there are a lot of loose ends to be tied up here. Um, when is it gonna happen? I mean, nobody can say for sure. Well, let's bring in my panel this week. We have author and historian, Dr. Tessa Dunlop, alongside, of course, Daily Mail's diary editor, Richard Eden. Thank you very much both for being with us. Uh, Richard, let's start with you. Uh, we sometimes get these little insights. Um, what do you make of it? Do you think the relationship has turned quite sour? 
I mean, from everything I hear, yes, it has. And it, it's very sad. I mean, it seems to be going the, the same way as Meghan's relationship with most of her family. Remember that, you know, she was pretty close to her father until um, she married into the royal family, until she met Harry. And then that went downhill. And it's sad to see Prince Harry's relationship with his father apparently going the same way. I, I do get the sense that it's sort of deliberate, perhaps from Harry, before the publication of his autobiography, he wants to put a bit of distance between himself and his father so that it kind of makes it easier to say some pretty unpleasant things. Do you agree, Tess? Is he distancing himself? Does he want to I be... I think there might be a, a subconscious disconnect. I think Richard might be right in this instance. Yeah. Amazing. But actually, more broadly, Harry there making it very clear to the watching world, hey, I got rid of that Saudi businessman, you know, in 2015. I saw that coming. I felt that was less a broadside against his father and more protecting himself, Harry, from a man who's now being discredited and whose processes with the Prince's Foundation are being rigorously investigated. So I think we need to bear that in mind. Is Harry attacking Charles or is Harry just trying to protect himself? Bearing in mind, he's now outside the institution of monarchy. So do you think he doesn't want to be associated with what he sees as his father's mistakes? I think it's less personal than that. I think we have to remember Harry's alone. He's gone it alone. He doesn't have the building blocks of monarchy. So he needs to make sure that the mud doesn't stick on him. And that means, by definition, he's pushing back against monarchy. It's a kind of, it's by default what's always going to happen and was always going to happen with Mexico, which is why it was so catastrophic that Mexit or Frexit or Hexit hectically, whatever we're going to call it, occurred. And Richard, do you think that, as Richard Kay said, this is sort of chipping away at Charles's credibility? I mean, could it get worse? I feel really sorry for Prince Charles. I mean, look, the Queen was always going to be an extremely hard act to follow. Um, and there have been plenty of doubts about Prince Charles as, as King. You know, he needs his sons to be supporting him and emphasising what a good monarch he would be. And instead, he has Harry you know, launching these brickbats from across the, the Atlantic. And I think this, this statement was definitely part of that. And I, I think there'll be worse to come. I do, I do worry, Brick genuinely. Bat. I think that's an overstatement. I, I really do. I do worry that eventually um, Harry will come out, perhaps, you know, after the death of his grandmother, and come out against the monarchy altogether. You know, that he, he's probably holding his gunpowder for, for that moment. Oh, my goodness. But I think that we overstate our tragic story that we're building around Charles. You know, he's got the oldest, most arguably most prestigious, certainly most majestic institution behind him, monarchy. It's Harry that's the piteous figure in this. I think Charles will be all right on the night, Jack. They'll stick a crown on his head. He's not going to be in there for that long. He's already over 70 and he'll, he'll make do. He'll manage. Mm. It's Harry that's actually the vulnerable one. He's alone in California, probably missing his family. I've, I've always felt a bit sorry for Harry. I think let's look at the wider picture, though. I think Harry wants to damage not just his father, but also his brother. You know, as Tessa says, Prince Charles probably won't be king for that long, but his brother will be. And Do I think he wants to he wants damage, to damage yeah. I think he's more protecting himself. And because he's left the monarchy, he has to therefore inadvertently criticise the monarchy, which therefore does do damage to his family. But I don't think it's as deliberate or as poisonous as you make out. Perhaps mm. more self-preservation. Yeah, um, I think so. And uh, talking of Harry, he's caused more controversy this week, Richard, um, praising those who quit their jobs that they don't like. Um, do you think he's at risk of sort of seeming a bit unaware, perhaps, in saying that? 
I think it's always a difficulty if you're living in, you know, some mansion in、um, Montecito. <laughs> it's quite hard to keep in touch with the the, the common man and woman. How and, do you manage it? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think he he does seem to be away, away with the fairies sometimes. You know, just going on about oh, you know, if you don't like your job, you know, jack it in. Well. You know, a lot of people they don't choose to do a job like him just because they fancy a few extra million. You know, they do a job to pay the know, bills, keep, pay a mortgage, and you know, keep bread on the table. So, no, I think he's he's not doing himself any favors at all, frankly. Tessa, what do you make of it? Would you accept some self-help advice from Harry? Well, I mean, I, I frequently model myself on Harry. Don't you know? I just sent back a book advance, and the liberation, the lightness I feel at the moment. Bank balance is certainly lighter. Did you really send back? An I really did. Yeah. So you're kind of taking Harry's advice there. Well, I feel that we're on a parallel track. I'm, I'm just waiting for the Santa Barbara mansion and、uh, a famous American actor to kind of sweep <laughs> me off my feet. Aren't we all? I, I think there's a point here. One is, they've left the conservative press by knocking the monarchy, inadvertently or not. That means that they're relying on a liberal fan base who are going to be less tolerant of apparently insensitive comment. Harry's could be construed as insensitive. Whereas I actually think, given that we can't all empathise with everyone all the time, Harry's not an Uber driver. He's not doing a zero-hours contract. He was speaking from the hoof. I, I, I had a degree of empathy for what he said, and I think lots of people probably occasionally need to be braver. I mean, Richard, how long have you been in your job? Isn't it time to shake it up? <laughs> I'm more than happy in my job. Thank you. But,、uh, there we go. Richard is not leaving the Daily Mail. Everybody, you heard it here first.、Uh, let's get the rest of the news from the Daily Mail's royal editor, Rebecca English.、Uh, Rebecca, first up, that is a lovely Christmas tree. Thank you. It's my very kind of union flag festive Christmas tree this year. But I thought I would try to get us in the mood. Hopefully, you can see the little crown on the top of it as well. Very regal. Now you've got the decorations up, Rebecca. Getting us in the festive spirit, which is very apt, as last night was the Cambridge's Christmas Carol concert, the one infamously moved from the BBC to ITV.、Uh, how was it? Yeah, so I was there at Westminster Abbey last night. Thought you might like to see the program there to prove it.、Um, and do you know what? I know you'd expect me to say this, but it was just a lovely event. I mean, there were a thousand people in the congregation.、Um, All of whom were kind of unsung community heroes from throughout the pandemic.、Um, they were greeted by reindeers as they walked in, and the Queen had sent over fir trees that had been cut down from her Windsor estate.、Uh, they were all kind of lit up. I mean, it was just magical inside. And there was a really lovely mix of carols,、um, which were obviously sung in conjunction with the Westminster Abbey choir. I mean, they're world famous, and they're kind of voices. Soaring through the kind of vaulted ceiling, and but there was really some more modern elements as well. You had people like Ellie Goulding and Leona Lewis.、Um, they were performing.、Um, it was just a really lovely, lovely mix of things last night, and you could just tell that people were really happy to be there. Sounds wonderful.、Uh, do you think this could become a new annual Christmas tradition? Well, I don't know. I mean, they were thinking it was a one-off, but actually, I think it'd be a fantastic royal event every year that will complement things like the honours and the garden parties that we have to celebrate our community heroes in this country.、Um, I'd love it if they thought about it every year. And I think it's worth pointing out、um, that what I think was quite clever about it. And this is becoming a bit of a Kate trademark. Is although she devised the idea and her and her team organised it, she there it was very clear not to make it about her. So although she wrote 
a foreword in the order of service. No big deal was made of it. It wasn't read out. She didn't stand up. She didn't do a reading. She really made sure that it wasn't about her, uh, which is not you know, always the case when it comes to members of the royal family or ex-members of the royal family, should I say. Um, I, I thought it was a really, you know, a clever, clever way to do it. It was about saying, you know, I'm using my convenient power to bring people together, but to this evening is about saying thank you to those people who've made a very difficult year for us that little bit easier. Now, of course, Kate may have been less prominent last night, but her husband, William, has been quite open this week, sharing some of his experiences in a very personal podcast. Uh, what more can you tell us about that? He did. And actually, this time a week ago, I was on a conference call with Kensington Palace and some executives for Apple and me and other journalists were given a kind of sneak preview of this podcast. And when they first told us what it was about, because there was a big mystery about it, we didn't know what we were going on the call for. Um, I was a bit like, oh, God, you know, is this going to be a little bit awkward? Um, I was a little bit sceptical. Um, but as we got into it, I thought it was actually a really well done and surprisingly kind of intimate experience. You know, you can hear the crunch of William's feet on the frozen grass at Sandringham. And as he says, it was kind of just walking around, like having a conversation with a, with a really good friend. And, um, you know, he really opened up in it. Um, he, he talked about his own mental health issues over the years. And while he didn't use the word depression, it was quite clear that he'd been to quite a dark place during his time as an air ambulance pilot. And there were some bittersweet memories recalling how him and his mum in the car used to listen on the way to school to Tina Turner's Simply the Best. And, and some fun moments, talking about the, the music that his kids love to dance around in the kitchen, Shakira Waka Waka is a favourite, and how they kind of have a little bit of fight between them as to who gets what choice on the radio. Um, I actually thought it really worked in the end. And, so, and, I, and I was thinking at the start of it, this might be a bit awkward, but I, I have to say I was wrong. And we all know about Harry's broadcasting on these sorts of topics. Do you think William is quite influenced by everything that his brother does? Good question. It's one that's, I think, slightly difficult to quantify because, of course, how much is it of William just getting a bit older and getting a bit more daring and a bit more comfortable in the public eye and kind of getting out of his comfort zone? But I think you do have to give Harry credit where credit's due. He was quite a trailblazer in this field, doing something a little bit different uh, more personal that was kind of outside of the traditional royal role. Um, so, and, and of course, William and Kate, actually, their social media manager they have now was Harry and Meghan's social media manager. And I think you can definitely see that in some of the, uh, the social media posts they do. Um, so I think you have to credit Harry with being some of the inspiration. But this is also about William feeling comfortable to slightly break out of the mould a bit as well. Now, Rebecca, I can't let you go without asking about your thoughts on Sarah Ferguson. Uh, this week, she has described herself as perhaps the most persecuted person in the history of the royal family. Uh, what did you make of that? Uh, honestly, uh, I thought that was slightly deluded, I have to say. Um, I mean, whether you're talking about kind of Anne Boleyn or Catherine Howard, some more modern day members of the royal family, Diana, Princess of Wales, and even the Duchess of Cornwall when she was Camilla Parker Bowles. I mean, I think there's a lot of women in the public eye who've been on, you know, they've had quite a hard time. And um, I think it's worth pointing out with, with Sarah, although as a woman, when I look back on some of the headlines she was subjected to, I wince. I mean, I think they were really horrible about her 
physical appearance, the way she dressed. I mean, the, the stuff that makes me cringe. And I stress this was long before I was in this business. Um, but equally, um, some of what, a lot of what she has been uh, kind of hauled over the coals in public for uh, was actually self-inflicted, you know, frolicking around by a pool with a, you know, financial advisor and, you know, profligate spending that twice, you know, brought her to the brink of, brink of bankruptcy. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of self-awareness there, God love her. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> an interesting claim, and I'm sure something others will have a lot to say about as well. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much as ever, Rebecca English. Uh, let's go back to my panel now. Um, we'll get to Fergie in a moment. Um, Richard, the Royal Concert looked very festive, very lovely. What do you make of it? Do you think it should be a, a traditional mm. annual concert? Well, I think uh, it was a fantastic idea. You know, it was rewarding these sort of unsung heroes of the pandemic. And I think it was always designed to be a one-off. But my goodness, the way things are going here at the moment with sort of new restrictions, you wonder whether we'll need another one next year to, um, you know, lift our spirits. But I think it was a, a really good idea and it was good to see all the other, um, lots of other royals joining them at this event. And um, I'm looking forward to watching it. It's going to be screened on Christmas Eve. So we've got to wait a bit for that. And it really was a family affair, wasn't it? All of the, the, the royals and parents coming out in force. Yeah, we had Princess Beatrice and Edo, her husband. Um, various royals came out. So um, it's good to see them all the there. The entire Middleton clan. Yes. You know, it's, it's all about sort of Kate and her, you know, family values. And my goodness, so it's the brother with his new wife. You'll know her name. Yep. Um, Elise. Elise. Thank you. Pip to the post there. <laughs> um, diarist, Richard. Um, so too, this, um, Sister Pippa was there. Yeah. And I just love the fact that Mike Tyndall and Zari, you're right. It was a real family affair, but I thought it underlined Kate's stature, really. This is very much her initiative. She was there in her Catherine Walker dress. I couldn't get hold of it, so I had to dilute mine with pink. But I tried my best to look as good very as Very similar, did. very similar. But if we could just talk, I know you're big on this, um, Jess, on Kate's look. It's that real evergreen where I think for about 10 years, she styled herself as older than she is. And now she's entered her fifth decade. It's like, wow, she is rocking that look. And it's a very clever strategy. Queens are old for a very long time. Most of them, the Queen Mother, she's like in our heads. She's always an old woman. Mm. Cur our current Queen, Elizabeth. And Kate, rather than us thinking, oh, the flower of her youth has diminished, it's almost like she's growing into her look and her role. And I think she's pitched it perfectly, actually, to give her credit. She's kept it very classic all the way through, hasn't she, really? Yeah, I mean, I suppose if you're a bitchy tabloid, you might say that for years and years, she was lamb dressed as mutton. And now mutton is where it's at. She's come into her own. Yeah. Um, now, let's talk a bit about William. Um, he has done his podcast talking about similar issues. Tessa, do you think what Harry does somehow dilutes what William does or do you think it still has the same impact? They did do that heads together thing as a, as a three it was at the time, mm. wasn't it? Then it became briefly the fab four. So I think it's unfair to give Harry all the initiative. I often wonder, we all talk about Harry and Harry's always at the sort of top of the storyboard, but arguably, as long as they're all part of the same conversation, it kind of emboldens the British monarchy, at least the soap opera aspect. It's probably not really the look that Charles and the Queen are going for, but better to be talked about than not at all. It's why our monarchy is much more famous than other European monarchies. So I'd say at the moment, I think they're greater than the sum of their parts, all of them. To what extent that can continue with the bad blood, I don't know. 
Mm. And Richard, what do you make of it? I mean, do you think the content is, is too similar? They're sort of vying for the same topics? I thought the podcast was fascinating. I mean, my goodness, you don't normally get that sort of insight into the, you know, the mind and the life of a, a future monarch. Um, so it's a very interesting listen. Um, and Hang on, if Harry had said, talked about him, you'd have gone, oh, God, more solipsistic diatribe from Harry. Let's well, be honest. Well, I, I think the key difference is Prince William said to Apple, you know, look, if I'm going to do this, I will only do it if it raises a large amounts of money for charities. So he was doing it through that royal view of service. But he can, because he gets paid as the future king. He's on the civil list. So it's unfair to say he's in a charity and Harry doesn't, because Harry has to earn a living. Yeah, but I think why you do things, it, it makes a big difference. You know, if the royal family were doing things to enrich themselves, then, you know, we would criticise them and there wouldn't be any, any point to them. Because but, we're already paying them, but we're not paying Harry. Well, that was his choice to move to um, yeah, America. But that's why I, I don't criticise him, because like you and me, he also makes a living from talking. He's got to pay the bills. Yeah. Let's move on to Sarah Ferguson, uh, Tessa. As a historian, um, I'd like to Can get your thoughts on um, <laughs> on her thoughts that she might be perhaps the most persecuted person in the history of the royal family. Um, is that true? Could she could she take that? I think, to be fair, she did say the most persecuted woman, didn't she? Woman, yes. <laughs> you know, but I think women have perhaps been more persecuted <laughs> than kings in many ways. I mean, generally, it was them getting their heads chopped off by their husbands. Um, obviously, that was a ridiculous thing to say. It was a little imbalanced. And he had sort of reminded us briefly of the sort of bonkers ridiculousness of Fergie. And, it, and also, you know, the Duke of Edinburgh, the late Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip, was always pretty sore on Fergie. He, they never really buried the hatchet. He didn't have time for her. He didn't sort of get her nonsense. And I think that's why she's sort of always felt profoundly misunderstood. I think that's just another cry for attention, isn't it? Oh, poor me. I'm, I'm so misunderstood. So we forgive her because she lives in this weird bubble along with her ex-husband, Andrew. I think they just spend a lot of time feeling sorry for themselves, don't they? Really? But what do you make of it, Richard? I mean, it's hard. She had some horrible headlines, as Rebecca said, about her, you know, back in the day. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, look she does use some colourful turns of phrase as Fergie, but um, I think her essential point is true. She has had a very hard time. You know, she's had... Um, you know, fake shakes or journalists from the news of the world trying to entrap her and this sort of thing. But, they, but the most of them at some point have experienced an equivalent ensnarement. And I think the weirdest thing about this was her sister-in-law, Diana, died in a tunnel chased by the paparazzi. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a slightly unfortunate phrase, but she has had a hard time. And what we love about her is, you know, she always bounces back and she's always got a smile on her face. So that that's why I've always... Um, like the Duchess, and, and I think, and, and remember, you know, what a good mother she's been. Um, despite all of Prince Andrew's problems, you know, he and Fergie have shown couples how you can carry on in a civilised way with each other and raise two, um, you know, very sensible daughters. To be fair, Eugenie and Beatrice smash it out. No matter what their parents are getting up to, they hold it together, don't they, those girls? <laughs> Wonderful. Well, that is all we have time for this week on Palace Confidential. As always, it's been a brilliant show. My thanks to Rebecca English, Dr. Tessa Dunlop, Richard Eden, Richard Kay. And of course, thank you for watching. We'll see you next time. Goodbye.